This is In the Weeds, the ultimate OLCC cannabis podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about an update on the rules with a focus on edibles, lifting the pause on accepting some types of new license applications, and we'll chat with OLCC's new statewide licensing director. And we'll take a look ahead to the short session in Salem. What's on tap? The legislature convenes in February next year. Plus, some changes to metric. Streamlining we think the industry will appreciate. All that and more coming up. So we've been on a hiatus. Amanda and TJ, it's been since July 2021 since we last had our or did a podcast and um, the pandemic has kind of overrun us with other activity, but it's good to be back, isn't it? Well, you're you're a year off, actually. The last one we did was July 2020. It's been that long. Oh, did I say 20? I meant 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been so long that we don't even have the same name that we had when we recorded the last podcast. That is, boy, you know, I'd already forgot. That was so seamless. I'd practically forgotten it. Yeah, and we have a lot to talk about today. I feel like we could fill like three podcasts with everything that's changed since we met last. Probably probably so. So we'll have to take it in bits and chunks. So, uh, and you're right, uh, TJ, one big small change for us is that we changed the name of our agency to the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. We've been doing this work now for about six years and um, finally changing the agency name to reflect uh, the combined mission of what we do. So all of that is, you know, reminds me, we're still a work in progress. We're continuing to uh, reorganize and rejigger and, um, you know, try and find efficiencies and uh, streamlining that we can do to help licensees as the industry continues to mature. So this podcast, as you said, we're going to cover uh, a number of issues, but we want to say this to our listeners. Since it has been a while, uh, we're not going to be able to cover everything uh, in this podcast, but we would sure like to hear back from you about what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like us to consider adding um, to this podcast uh, as we go forward. So you can send us feedback. You can actually email us at marijuana at Oregon.gov. And in the subject heading, make mention of the podcast in the weeds or podcast or feedback or something like that. So anyway, we'd love to hear from you. Well, let's get on with the podcast. But first, our usual housekeeping. This podcast is being recorded in December 2021, so anything regarding the rules communicated in previous podcasts may be superseded by this podcast or podcasts after this one or through other communications from the OLCC. We do have our usual caveat. Remember, we call it Amanda's Rule, which is read the rules. So here's the official disclaimer. This podcast and the information contained or the information provided during this podcast is not, capital letters, not a substitute for the rules or for knowing what the rules are. So when in doubt about something you hear on this podcast, contact the OLCC for clarification. The easiest way to do that is to write to us at marijuana at Oregon 
www.thepodcastnetwork.gov. Well, the sound of the bellowing elephants means it's time for the segment Elephant in the Room. That's the big issues in front of us. What are people talking about? What are some of the things that are on licensees' mind? Well, one of the things that's probably up front is the recent news from the OLCC that we have lifted the pause that was put in place after a deluge of applications back in 2018 and then subsequent action by the legislature to put a halt to the flow of applications for recreational marijuana licenses. We've lifted that pause as of early November. And uh, as we begin to accept additional applications, we can talk about some changes that have taken place in the licensing division of the OLCC. So joining us to talk about the pause and other issues taking place in our licensing division is Andy Jurek, our new statewide licensing director. Andy, welcome to In the Weeds. Thank you for having me. So you come to your role in sort of a from a unique position in that essentially you kind of worked your way up through the marijuana division or the marijuana program. And so you have a pretty interesting perspective um, of how things work, uh, beginning from being in the field to licensing to inspection. So as you enter into this role, talk about how that perspective benefits you and, and benefits licensees. Well, I'll just start back to when I started. Um, I I came on to OLCC when the marijuana program was starting. So at that time, it was all hands on deck. I was actually a liquor investigator. And so we all jumped on to start helping process uh, marijuana license. So I got to do that, learned basically from the ground up on the how the licensing process worked, what the paperwork looked like and how that flow was. And then I just Kind of worked my way up, came out of that, promoted up into manager. I uh, managed two regional offices uh, since then and just recently got this position. So I have been able to work with that and being able to work out in the regions. I've been able to work with the inspectors and uh, that one-on-one -on -one with licensees and talking to them and understanding uh, what their needs are and uh, from a com more from a compliance side, which is greatly uh, greatly helps when it comes to the licensing part too, because they both interact with each other. Andy, your predecessor in this position, Jason Hansen, who's now shifted over to the director of compliance, he uh, his big focus was uh, clearing the backlog of applications, um, and we're now uh, doing pretty well in terms of uh, the number of applications we have to process, which contributes to the lifting of that pause that we'll talk about. But I'm curious, what do you see over the next three to six months as uh, your priority and priority for the licensing division? Well, we're gonna continue uh, to become more efficient. Uh, they've, they've really have worked on the whole licensing process. They've given uh, some of the major changes that they gave the the investigators, licensed investigators, more ability to make approvals and not where before they had to go to a you know a, basically a two prong approval. So you know they were working the files, they would get them completed, it would go into 
a process where it had to be looked at several times before it could get approved and get licensed, and it would get bottlenecked. So they took away that so they give the ability to the investigator to make a decision to approve that so it speeds up. We looked at what we needed by statute and what by we needed by rule and what paperwork we actually needed for the application. So streamline that. So that's helped uh, just doesn't take time away from having to look for things that we didn't need and didn't apply for the file. And my goal is to continue to maintain streamlining and be efficient and be ready to take on whatever comes out of the legislative session in February. And also additionally, uh, We've been actively recruiting for new investigators, which uh, they've done a great job. The HR team has done a great job getting that. We're trying to fill eight positions. We've gotten two uh, filled, and we're working on six more. Uh, and they're they're in the various stages of hiring, the background. So for that's good news. We get more staff on. We can do more things and become more efficient. That's great news about the staff, Andy. That's going to be really helpful. Um, so I think um, when we announced that we were going to go ahead and lift the pause, there was a lot of mixed emotions from the industry about us starting up a licensing again. And I think one of the things that kind of confused people was that we were processing applications as far back as 2018 when we say we're lifting the pause. So it doesn't necessarily mean that I could apply for a license today and get it. Um, right away. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, how many applications um, we're looking at right now and, um, you know, who's ready? Are we looking at a, at a lot of new licensees? So, you know, a little bit of history. We had to, because of the legislative uh, mandate, stop accepting new producer applications back uh, in 2019. But before that, we the agency had made a decision to kind of stop and pause things because we had a backlog. They needed to address a, a lot of things. And that's where Jason started uh, making those changes. And there was lots of discussion. Now, you know, I came on a few months ago and I'm kind of, you know, picking up the, the reins and continuing forward with what uh, they had started. There was a lot of discussion. Okay, when are we going to decide? What is a good time to decide to start lifting the pause? you know, the non-producer pause applications, or where, how's that going to look when? There was a lot of, you know, timeframes set. And, you know, there was priorities that had come in line and shifted that decision. So I kind of looked at it right off the bat, just to, with the looming January 2nd lifting of, uh, of the producer pause that goes away, then we're going to start accepting applications on that end. And then what a lot of talk that's it's happening around the February session and decided we need to start working on the pause application to get them start moving through the queue because if we don't do something, we're just going to start stacking applications on top of applications and we're never going to get ahead of where we need to be. So we decided we're going to go ahead and do it. Uh, we put it out there. We actually, after you looked at the whole, how many applications that was, it ended up to be in 232 that were in that pause uh, window. And then November 8th was the date we'd pick and we sent out notifications to all 232 of those applications, applicants. And we gave them 14 days to respond. Uh, it uh, let us know if they were ready to respond or ready to be assigned. And I can tell you the numbers we got back. Uh, there's 117 total that responded and said, yes, we're gonna move forward. 105 of those 
are going inactive. And that means they just never got back to us. They didn't respond. We gave them several notifications via email and voicemail, and they didn't get back to us. And then 14 responded back, and they're withdrawn completely, their application. So about half, basically right now, uh, based on what we have, half responded back and are going to, as they start getting the paperwork required, the uh, request for assignment completed, then they'll just fall into the queue uh, in line with everyone else. And the goal is to start getting one streamlined queue that's easy to manage and we can maintain that uh, instead of having you know we basically had two or three different queues running and trying to manage that uh, was starting to become difficult so that was the the idea behind that do you think the the pause enabled the staff to get considerably more experienced at not just sort of pivoting but also sort of uh looking you know seriously at ways to streamline in that, when we first started licensing back in, you know, April of 2016, we hadn't contemplated renewals at that point in time. Uh, we didn't uh, realize or consider that there would be so much, so many business structure changes and that sort of thing. Do you think did the did the pause allow for some, if not necessarily capacity building, at least some experience building by the staff to become more fluid in processing applications? Uh, yes and no. Uh, we didn't stop, you know, working applications. The Even though the pause was going on, there was a lot of change of ownerships, uh, change of locations, things in the industry were still moving around. Uh, so we were, you know, continuing to work applications and, and process those. And then the renewal started, you know, happening. We're, you know, that's always been happening, but uh, we've streamlined that process uh, and, and we worked on the backlog. The last I heard as of last week, we were where before we were several years behind, and now we're just a couple of months behind in current year of renewal. So that process, it has given a little bit of, of time, and that was the idea behind the process is to slow things down. Let's get caught up. Let's let's get uh, work on what we need to look identify where the problems and the bottlenecks are in the process, and fix those. And you know that's basically starting from ground zero and building back up because you you have to go all the way back to what is required by statute and then how does that line up with the rules and vice versa so uh, got through that process so we're in a good spot right now uh, with the new staff coming on board the training uh, the new process the streamline process uh, we're, uh, we're in a good spot Andy, I'm glad you brought up the change of ownership and the change of location. Um, I've been hearing some people with uh, hearing a lot of questions actually about by lifting the pause and working older applications, are people going to see a slowdown with their change of location and um, change of ownership requests? You will see one probably. Uh, uh, you're not going to see it like right now currently because we're just now getting you know, re replies back that people are, yeah, we're, we want to continue on and we're going to start that process. Uh, once that 117 start getting into the queue, you may see a slow slowdown, but it's kind of like, you know, we're coming up to a hill and we got a downshift and we're going to slowly pick up speed and go up that hill. But once we get over this, this little hill, we'll start coming down on the backside and we'll start uh, moving a little bit more efficient. And by that time, you know, uh, we're going to start having the staff, new new, new staff coming on board. They'll start training. Uh, so hopefully they'll start plugging them in to pick up 
the increase. Andy, you talked about the the numbers of the applications in various parts of the process and how we streamline licensing. From the perspective of a current licensee or someone who wants to get into the industry, what does the pause mean for them? What's the biggest impact lifting the pause is going to have on a current licensee or someone wanting to get in? If you want to get in and you want to apply, you just if you're a non-producer at this time, you just start to process, uh, get in line and get in the queue. And uh, you're going to be processed in order that you submitted, basically, and that you tell us you're ready to go. I think the, the, the assurance, though, that we can give licensees, Andy, is that uh, compared to, you know, before the pause when, you know, we weren't really able to project the time to completion of an application. We didn't have uh, hadn't made adjustments and identified efficiencies that, um, you know, when folks heard that new applications might be joining the, the queue for, you know, change in location, change in ownership, they may have, you know, kind of shuddered and thought, oh, gosh, you know, how is this going to push me back uh, even further? But I think I think what you're trying to to share, we're all trying to share, is that the improvements and the efficiencies, the staff is able to get through applications much faster, much more effectively, and much more efficiently. Correct. And, you know, it's as if you're in line and you're in the queue and you've been assigned, you're going to be processed. You're, you're going to be processed just because we have 117 applicants that just told us they want to continue. It's not going to they have to get in line. They're going to get in line behind you because you're already in line. You're ahead of them. It's not. We're not going to allow people to cut. We're not. We're not going to move these 117 applicants up because they submitted. You know, last year. That's not how that works. They have to. Once they notify us, the day they notify us uh, that they're ready is when they. That's when they get lined into the queue, and that's just basically a daily order. Right, and and that's the that's the whole point too. Is that you know. Early on, there are a lot of people who put in straw man or placeholder uh, applications who really weren't earnest in moving forward. And now we have a process, as you indicated, a number of those have, you know, been kicked out, you know, because of inactivity. And so they're no longer effectively gumming up the works and standing in the way and impeding the progress of licensed applicants who really want to to go forward and, you know, make that make that commitment. Yeah, and the other thing that we have in place that we didn't have before is we have the 60-day uh, completion, and that's by rule. Uh, and if you don't, once you are assigned and start the process, if you don't uh, respond back in 60 days with everything that we require you to, you go, uh, you basically get kicked out of the queue and uh, you go back to the bottom of the line until you can get it together or you go inactive. Um, so we have a process where, you know, you just can't stay in that. Oh, you know what? I'm quite not ready, or you don't give me a form, or you don't give me a floor plan. Oh, I'll get it to you next week. You know, we used to let those things just go on and on, and they, you know, that that person's taken up a basically a spot in an investigator's queue where someone that is ready can't get in because they're waiting on this person. Now we have that 60 days; they're going to drop off. So that puts you know that window in there that things are going to get done quicker and they have to, or if, if you don't, and we put more onus back on the applicant, uh, a little less handholding by us, more responsibility on them because it's their business and we just want to help them, but uh, we put more onus back on them. So that's helped speed things up. 
Right. I mean, early on, we were all learning this, and and now we, you know, both the industry and and uh, regulators have a lot more experience. So, well, before we let you go, uh, tell us what else you might, you know, as you're looking at in terms of your new role, what else do you have in mind, or what else you get, you're hoping to focus on uh, as we go forward? Well, you know, the the new year's right around the corner. It's going to be it's an exciting time. We get the new staff on board. Uh, once they get in place, we're going to start an audit system where we go back and start auditing files and making sure that um, uh, they're in compliance and we're 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 following. And then we'll you know constantly look at the application process and can we get better and where where can we uh, find. Uh, uh, a step that we can speed up and then uh, becoming uh, stepping into modernization that's going to be happening in a couple of years. Pretty exciting. I was going to, I was thinking we needed to talk about that licensing system that's on the way, but we'll save that for another episode. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Very good. Andy Jurek, thanks for joining us on In the Weeds, the OLCC podcast. We'll see you again down the line. This is In the Weeds, the ultimate OLCC cannabis podcast for licensees and others interested in learning more about operating in Oregon's legalized cannabis industry. It's Compliance Corner. Here's where we take a look at some of the more commonly occurring, if not necessarily the most egregious compliance issues that are cropping up. In this instance, we're actually looking forward towards artificially derived cannabinoids. And joining us is Steve Crowley, OLCC's hemp and processing specialist. Steve, welcome to In the Weeds. Thanks. It's good to be here. Nice to have you as well. So, during the last legislative session, the House or the legislature passed and the governor signed House Bill 3000, which essentially kind of set the table for this discussion, put some framework around uh, the introduction of uh, artificially derived cannabinoids um, into the regulatory system. So where are we now? What are, what are we looking at and, and why is it relevant? Uh, right. So House Bill 3000 had a particular focus on artificial cannabinoids, on hemp, and on cannabis product potency issues. Uh, and the bill directs OLCC to regulate artificially derived cannabinoids within our licensed market, as well as setting potency limits both for THC and artificially derived cannabinoids on marijuana and hemp products in Oregon, both within our regulated adult use market, as well as on the general market in Oregon, such as hemp products sold at health food stores, convenience stores, and CBD shops. We're currently in the rulemaking process to implement this and other legislation through a sizable bill and technical rule package. So these rules are not in place yet. Uh, we have a draft of these rules out for uh, public notice, uh, and we'll be holding a public hearing on this rules package on December 20th. And we encourage anyone who's interested to read these rules, uh, which are on our website, and to provide written comments uh, by email to olcc.rulemaking at oregon.gov. Steve, uh, during the legislative session, a lot of the conversation was around Delta-8 THC, which is an artificially derived cannabinoid, and the issues of access by children because of loopholes in, in cannabis law around that access. Del, uh, HB 3000 dealt with Delta-8, 
But as you're saying, it dealt with artificially derived cannabinoids more broadly than just Delta-8. Why does the bill uh, direct OLCC to take this broader approach to artificially derived cannabinoids and not just one particular one like Delta-8? Yeah, so I think it's helpful to take a step back and talk about what exactly an artificially derived cannabinoid is. And basically what that means is cannabinoids that were made from cannabis materials, like a hemp extract or a marijuana extract, but then putting that extract through some synthetic processes that change the chemical structure of the cannabinoids in that extract. So basically we're talking about semi-synthetic cannabinoids. Uh, and the reason that that's something that's important to to think about how we're going to regulate is because when something's made synthetically, no synthetic process is 100% efficient. There's always going to be byproducts from the chemical reaction and impurities. And uh, without identifying what those reaction byproducts and impurities are for any given process and making sure that those have been purified out to a, a level where they're not harmful, there's just a lot of really unknowns that are are being passed on to consumers uh, in, in terms of potential health risks. And Stephen, from what we've been kind of reading and hearing from other states, it seems like the artificially dried cannabinoids are kind of like a hot new thing. And it seems like there's just new versions coming out all the time. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, there there really are. Uh, Delta 8 THC uh, was kind of the, the first big one uh, to to come onto the market. Uh, and it, that seems to be at least in part because it can be synthesized from hemp-derived CBD. And in 2018, after the Farm Bill passed, there was a surplus of CBD on the market and a lot of companies looking for what they could do with that to turn it into to products that they could could sell and delta 8 thc fit that bill and so it we started seeing uh, a lot of companies making uh, synthetic delta 8 thc and selling those products but uh, yeah as you said there are, are more and more of these kinds of products coming on the market all the time uh, both intoxicating products and non-intoxicating products uh, some of the intoxicating ones that we've seen coming out are uh, Delta-8 THCO acetate, which uh, is uh, supposed to be more potent than Delta-8 THC. Uh, there's also um, hexahydrocannabinol uh, is another popular one uh, that's starting to be sold uh, pretty widely. Uh, but then also in terms of the, the non-intoxicating products, uh, one thing that I don't think a lot of people uh, think about is uh, CBN or cannabinol. Uh, now, CBN occurs in small amounts in cannabis, both in hemp and marijuana, uh, through the natural oxidation of THC. But and so that naturally occurring CBN that may end up in uh, different hemp or, or marijuana extracts is obviously not an artificially derived cannabinoid. It's it's naturally occurring. But there are more and more products that are uh, adding purified CBN. And where that purified CBN mostly seems to be coming from is by conversion, again, from CBD, uh, either through a, a direct uh, kind of one-pot process from CBD to CBN, or sometimes uh, converting that CBD 
2 THC, delta 8 THC, delta 9 THC, and then oxidizing that THC into CBN. So a multi-step synthetic process uh, to, to arrive at the, the same CBN that occurs naturally in the plant. But because it's being made synthetically, it may contain other impurities or byproducts that aren't part of the cannabis plant and aren't, aren't part of a natural cannabis extract. Steve, you've been on the podcast before. It was our very special episode uh, two or three years ago, which I think had Mark's all-time favorite soundtrack in that episode. So people who listen to that episode, you know, it was a two-part episode. It, it, it was, I think, a total of two hours or something like that. So people got a flavor for how complicated hemp regulation is in relation to sort of the OLCC system and everything else. But can you give the quick version you're talking about OLCC having concentration limit authority for artificially derived cannabinoids. But in terms of the people making artificially derived cannabinoids, the sale of artificially derived cannabinoids in the hemp general market, who regulates that? What's the oversight like? Can you describe a little bit in terms of uh, what that supply chain looks like and the regulation of it? Absolutely. So at this point, there isn't necessarily any regulation, uh, any regulatory authority over the manufacturers of hemp-derived, artificially-derived cannabinoids on the open market outside of the OLCC license system. Uh, in terms of hemp regulation in Oregon, anyone who uh, receives and handles and processes raw hemp, the, the harvested plant material, they need to register with the Department of Agriculture as a hemp handler. But if somebody is just purchasing hemp extracts and then doing synthetic chemistry on those extracts, there's no hemp license required for that. There's no OLCC license required for that. Uh, obviously, OLCC regulations apply if one of our licensed processors is engaged in that activity. But for manufacturing outside of our license system, uh, at this point, there just really isn't any regulatory oversight of that manufacturing process. Stephen, as, Steve, brother, as we approach this, uh, is there a cautionary tale from the E-Valley uh, outbreak in, in 2019? I mean, me memories are short and certainly have been, you know, we're putting things now into pre-COVID and, you know, and COVID. Uh, I mean, that was only a few years ago, and it had a pretty devastating impact on consumers. So is there anything we can learn from that as it relates to, to this? Yeah, I mean, Evaly, it was really an issue of the the unknowns, the, the public health unknowns and consumer health and safety unknowns with vape products and the additives that were being put into those products. And it, there's kind of that, that push and pull of do you set regulations proactively to make sure that products meet a reasonable standard of safety before they enter the market? Or do you keep regulations hands off until people start dying? And I mean, that's that was really the issue in Evalley. Uh, and you know, once once that health crisis really became apparent, uh, OLCC took some pretty swift action, banned several specific uh, adulterants from being used in vape products, and then really put in place a, a strong program of uh, disclosure to consumers so consumers can make informed choices about the, the products that they're buying. Uh, with artificially derived cannabinoids, uh, we have sort of a, a similar 
dynamic where it, there, we don't know for certain what the health risks are. And that's in part because there are many different synthetic processes that can be used to make these compounds. Some of these compounds like the, the THC, Delta-8-THCL acetate are really new and haven't been consumed by humans prior to this year. Um, and so there's, there's the unknown of the product itself, but also there are the reaction byproducts and impurities questions where without knowing what those byproducts and impurities are, that also represents a significant unknown health risk to the consumers. Uh, and so that's that's really what we're we're trying to be mindful of is you know when people go into their uh, their local marijuana retailer and purchase products, they see that these products have gone through regulatory testing. And I think that usually gives people a, a sense of security that these products are are safe. These are regulated by the state. And for novel products like these artificially derived cannabinoids, that's not necessarily true. We we simply don't have the data at this point to know whether these things are safe or not. And in part, that safety profile probably depends on exactly how that product was made, what measures that specific manufacturer has in place. And you know, as we just talked about, there is not currently any regulatory oversight of a lot of this manufacturing supply chain. So, I mean, that, that really represents unknowns compounded by further unknowns. So Stephen, when you're talking about the artificially derived cannabinoids in the OLCC market versus the general marketplace, um, and the OLCC market, we have um, labeling authority. So we can make sure that what's in a product and it is labeled appropriately and consumers are aware what's in the product. Um, because there is so little regulatory oversight in the general market, it seems like that piece may be missing in general commerce. Yeah, that's correct. There, there isn't really any labeling authority over products, uh, hemp products sold in the, the general market outside of the OLCC system. And so that that is part of why the, the draft rules uh, that are up on our website are written the way they are, where uh, artificially derived cannabinoids would uh, effectively be prohibited in hemp products on the general market for the moment. Uh, as more science comes in, that's something that I think the agency is absolutely open to to revisiting. We always do want our, our rules to follow the science. Uh, but within the OLCC market, um, we do have that labeling authority. And so that's also part of the proposed rules is that artificially derived products that, that meet the requirements to be sold within our license system, one of those requirements would be that it's labeled so that a consumer is aware that this is an artificially derived cannabinoid in the product that they're purchasing. Steve, as we wrap up, let's let's talk about what consumers and licensees can expect in terms of our rulemaking around this, kind of what the timeline is, and then any other perspectives that you might want to share. Yeah. And so in terms of timelines, uh, the the rules, uh, if they uh, go into effect on January 1st, they have built in kind of a, a sell down window for uh, any products that are currently on the market, but don't meet the new rule requirements. Those products could continue to be sold up until July 1st of 2022. So a six month uh, sell down starting in July 1st, that's when 
all products would need to comply with the new rules. And so for products in the OLCC system, that means a label that discloses that it the product contains an artificially derived cannabinoid. Uh, for products out on the general market, uh, that means no artificially derived cannabinoids uh, and also uh, limits on how much Delta 9 THC can be in those hemp products on the general market. Uh, that was another pretty significant issue uh, that the, the legislature was looking at in House Bill 3000. When products are, are limited, as hemp products are, to just 0.3% Delta 9 THC, 0.3% sounds small, but in the context of uh, edible products in particular, uh, when you multiply 0.3 times the weight of a 15-gram gummy or an 80-gram chocolate bar, that's a lot of Delta 9 THC that can be in those products. Uh, and you know, often those, those products can exceed the amount of Delta 9 THC that's allowed within the, our licensed adult use system. Uh, so there, there are proposed limits in these draft rules to uh, limit the amount of Delta 9 THC uh, in hemp products sold to adults to uh, 10 milligrams in a, a hemp edible, 50 milligrams in a hemp tincture, still trying to keep plenty of room open for full spectrum hemp products that, that people you know, know and use, while at the same time sort of trying to, to close the, the federal loophole for really highly intoxicating, highly potent uh, Delta 9 THC hemp products that are, are currently being sold on the general market. Steve Crowley, OLCC hemp and processing specialist with a look ahead at rulemaking around artificially derived cannabinoids. Steve, thanks for joining us again on In the Weeds. Thanks. Coming up next, we'll have the question of the podcast and we'll take a look at the calendar. You're listening to In the Weeds, the ultimate OLCC cannabis podcast. So we're at that time for the question of the podcast, and here's this episode's question, one that's probably on the minds of a lot of our licensees. Remember, the legislature recently approved a bump up in THC concentration levels for edibles, and there are some implications for that as we head into 2022. So joining us to talk about that is Anthony Geltoski, OLCC Recreational Marijuana Policy Analyst. Anthony. Good to have you back with us. Mark, good to be here. Thanks. So let me kind of string out the rest of that question is, so there's we've got this bump up in THC concentration levels for edibles. So what's that going to look like for packaged items? And what should consumers be on the lookout for? Well, that's, that's a good question, Mark. So um, as some of you may know, the OLCC has put out a draft language uh, for our bill and technical package. And so in this draft language, what we've done is we've proposed a sunrise date of July 1st of 2022. Uh, what that will mean is that on July 1st of 2022, uh, licensees could sell and consumers could purchase edibles with up to 100 milligrams of THC in the package. Now, nothing requires licensees to sell products with 100 milligrams of THC in the package. That's just an option. They can do 50, they can do 75 or 100 if they'd like. 
Um, and you know, our, our idea with the Sunrise here is that we'd like to minimize the disruption to the industry of having this change effective immediately because people need to formulate new products, uh, develop new SOPs, uh, train employees, order new equipment, uh, packaging and labeling. So our hope here is that this will help everybody get on the same level playing field and all licensees will be ready for this change at the same time. Anthony, the, you mentioned the proposed rules and obviously the proposed rules do increase the concentration limits up to 100 milligrams, but there's also an element, a new requirement under the, the higher concentration limits that uh, edibles will have to be scored. Can you talk a little bit about that of what the scoring is, why that's being proposed um, and, and what licensees and consumers can expect? Yeah, that's a good question, TJ. So I'll start with the why. So Oregon is somewhat of an outlier in the recreational marijuana states in that we allow self-portioning with serving diagrams. Um, and we also have a very high level of uh, poison control center uh, calls for accidental and overconsumption of marijuana edibles by minors. So from a regulator standpoint, that's a little concerning. So what we've decided to do is require scoring for edibles that exceed 55 milligrams of THC in the package. Now note, that is in the package, that's not per item. So scoring does have a specific definition and rule, and I know everybody loves hearing rules and reading rules, but I'm gonna read a paraphrased, defi uh, paraphrased definition of scored because that is helpful here. So scored means to permanently physically demark a cannabinoid edible in a way that enables a reasonable person to intuitively determine how much of a product constitutes a single serving. So that, that's a mouthful right there. But uh, some easy examples are uh, loose single serving gummies and chocolate bars that have physical separation marks for each piece. So think your classic Hershey bar. Um, you know, what wouldn't be acceptable are lines of frosting on a cookie because that's not permanent um, or imperceptible lines on an edible because that doesn't intuitively allow somebody to portion them. And lastly, I'll just point out that this requirement applies to solid edibles. So it doesn't apply to liquids uh, and it also doesn't apply to products, solids that are incapable of being scored. So this is very limited. So uh, examples of this would include powders and viscous solids like honey. So the, the reference to Hershey's, by the way, just so we clear that up, is just that a normal, uh, uh, not all Hershey's bars, but many of them you can break off into tiny little portions if you want to use them for s'mores or something like that, right? And that's what you're talking about in terms of scoring. And it's just like the Hershey's bar, it's easy and clear where you break those those sections off. Yeah, yeah, this is one of those things that's hard to convey, you know, over voice without having uh, visual examples. But yeah, you got it, Mark. So if I'm hearing you right, so let's say somebody wanted to make, um, let's say they made like little bite-sized brownies, for example. If each of those brownies were one serving, they could have multiple of those in a package. And that just because it was single serving pieces, that would be considered scored because you'd be able to tell that one piece is one serving. Yep, because that, that's intuitively, you're intuitively able to determine how much is a single serving. And so kind of to piggyback on that, um, since we currently allow up to 50 milligram edibles in the marketplace, what if a processor doesn't want to make 100 milligram edibles? Is it like a requirement? Or can you just continue on status quo of what you've been doing for the past five years? 
Yeah, I mean, you can absolutely, licensees can absolutely uh, continue on a status quo. So basically, if the edible, if, if it's in the package exceeds 55 milligrams of THC, then it has to be scored. So what this really means is that licensees can no longer use those serving diagrams to have people self-portion themselves using the diagram. But if it doesn't exceed 55, you can still use a serving diagram. You can use your current packaging and labeling. No changes are needed. And Anthony, you, you you mentioned labeling, and if you have this new item, changes would be needed. If you keep your item as is, no changes would be needed. What is it going to look like for licensees who do want to uh, go up to that 100 milligrams? What's it going to look like for them to change their label, get the requisite approval, get the items to market? Can you describe uh, the steps that they'll need to go through to make sure that their labels are compliant? Yeah, ha happy to do this, TJ, because um, the labeling rules allow you to change a very limited subset of information on your label without resubmission and pre-approval. Uh, so those are things like harvest date, UID, test results. So if licensees uh, want to stay in compliance, what they need to do is that they'll most likely have to resubmit and get their label reapproved again to modify their label for the 100 milligram THC limit. You know, every licensee's label is unique. Everybody has unique circumstances. So if folks have questions about this, please, please contact me at marijuana.packaging at oregon.gov. I'm happy to provide guidance whether you need to resubmit your label. The other thing I point out too is that um, OLCC cannot approve labels that violate current rules. So OLCC will not approve 100 milligram uh, edible labels until these rules become operative. So that, that's something just to keep in mind uh, for planning. Now let's say, Anthony, that I really, really, really want to get ahead of the curve and I want to make something that's 100 milligrams. Uh, should I go and uh, print my labels based on the rules that have been proposed now and expect that those will be unchanged and I'm good to go? Uh, TJ, very good point. No, uh, licensees should absolutely uh, not do that. So a couple things here. So the language that we put out a few weeks ago, this, this draft language is just that. It is a draft. And so right now we're accepting uh, public comments. And so based on those comments, we may alter this the, the language of these rules. So our commission is going to meet, uh, I believe, December 28th, and that's when they adopt these rules. And so that's basically when these rules will become final. Um, so this is when licensees should make start making moves uh, in, in making plans uh, for what they want to do. And you know, as far as getting labels printed, um, I always, always encourage licensees not to print their labels until it shows as approved in the online system. So Anthony, normally when we have a big rule package like this, we'll put out um, some sort of compliance bulletin explaining the rules after the commission's voted on it. Um, is the the new rules around edibles and maybe the possible sunrise date, will that be included in a compliance bulletin? Uh, yes, absolutely, Amanda. We're actually uh, working on that compliance bulletin already. Um, we will have some visual examples because I know the scoring thing is very hard to explain in text. So we'll have some visual e examples in there and we will most likely get this compliance bulletin out right on the 28th when the commissioners adopt these rules. So licensees can have a very clear um, guide as to what OLCC's updated rules are and what our 
interpretation of those Anthony, can you gauge interest in this uh, so far? I mean, do you expect from conversations you've had with uh, uh, processors and other folks that will a lot of folks be wanting to take advantage of this and, and actually uh, have that kind of new, but probably new packaging for the larger uh, allowance? Yeah, Mark, I've, I've got a lot of questions and a lot of excitement about this. And I think that those questions and the excitement kind of illustrate somewhat of the confusion and the lack of understanding with some of the industry of what these changes will actually look like. So I think that has kind of helped push us towards the sunrise date so everybody can be on the same page and understand these requirements all at the same time. Got it. And just kind of going back to a question that TJ asked earlier with regard to, you know, jumping the gun and getting stuff in early. At some point after the rules are approved and they're in place, you'll you'll set in motion a procedure for people to be able to submit their applications and you know whether you streamline it or 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 you know give indications about how how it will move we'll get that out there so that folks don't worry about a, a log jam, right? Because I think that's would be a concern both for licensees and, and for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I do have a month long vacation scheduled for the sunrise day. No, I'm just kidding. I will absolutely uh, prioritize uh, these labels at that time. And I'm happy via email to pre-review everybody's labels too. And so that way January or the sunrise date, July 1st, everybody's ready to go, and we can get the labels approved ASAP. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that, and we'll probably need to have you back on the podcast. That is, if we can get back on a regular schedule to talk about this some more. So, hey, Anthony, where, before you go, so where can they, um, people write? So is it is it the same one that Stephen gave? Is it? Yes, Mark. It's the email address that Stephen mentioned. It's just olcc.rulemaking at oregon.gov. Uh, Anthony Giltoski, policy analyst with the OLCC, thanks for joining us today on In the Weeds. Thanks for having me, guys. So, guys, let's take a look at the calendar. Um, we're almost at the end of the year, almost to the winter solstice. I'm keeping an eye out for that because I can't wait for the sunshine to start increasing. Uh, especially here in the Northwest. But um, as we get to the end of the year, what are you guys keeping an eye on? I know we've got you know a short session coming up the legislature, Amanda. So uh, there are probably a few things that, that you're focusing on or keeping track of. Yeah, definitely, Mark. And I think just to highlight it really quick before I talk about legislative session, um, even though we've mentioned it a few times in the podcast today, um, we have our draft rules out that will be finalized at the end of December. And so anybody can go to our website under the tab public hearing, and they can look at those rules and send comments to olcc.rulemaking at oregon.gov. So that's right now, that's what I'm thinking about most because that's going to be all happening in the next you know month. But looking forward to February, um, we do have a one month legislative session. So things move really quickly. You know, I wish I knew exactly what to expect, but I think we can safely assume we're probably going to hear more about illicit cannabis production in Southern Oregon, probably hear more about, you know, funding for that for that area. 
probably hear about water concerns, um, especially with the droughts from last year. And um, there's always um, the possibility of, you know, continued producer moratorium, um, just so people can, can combat that illicit production down there. So it's just a guess, but I'm thinking that that might be what we're going to be hearing a lot about in February. Well, I was just thinking, uh, Amanda, we're not going to hold you to that. In other words, what I'm going to say is I, I think maybe an episode a while back, a long, a long back, I should say, I think we did some predictions then too. And I, I don't know if we dare go back and revisit that episode to see if they came true or not. So anyway, uh, we might just leave that to a numbers guy. So TJ, that's your cue. <laughs> so now I'm doing the predictions that we'll uh, hold it accountable for. Okay. Uh, well, I've got a couple of predictions. One is, you know, related to the hemp items. Uh, we've got a task force that's going to be going in 2022 that's going to pull together legislators, members of industry from both health and marijuana, law enforcement, uh, the different agencies involved, cities and counties, all on what should hemp look like, what are the challenges of hemp and how should it be regulated. And so that's going to be ongoing work throughout 2022. And then the big one, you know, you, you, previewed it at the top of the episode, Mark, but I'm also predicting streamlining in metric. Uh, so one big thing that we actually did for this last harvest season is rather than requiring licenses to harvest uh, or to enter the, the wet weight harvested of each individual plant, so 1.1 pound for this plant, 1.5 pounds for that plant, we allow them to harvest all the plants together and average the weight for each of the plants. And we added some functionality and metric to support that. And so that is a big time saver already. But in 2022, the big thing that's coming is the contract that we are renewing with metric is going to include some planning deliverables or plant batch tagging in the future. And so instead of having to individually tag plants, we're working with metric to work towards what's going to be called zonal tagging and so sets of plants in an area or a zone will be tagged with with one tag rather than 100 tags or 50 tags or whatever. Uh, so that's going to be a time saver and is a money saver for licensees in terms of how much the, the tags they have to buy the labor for attaching the tags all those sorts of things that's probably not going to come until 2023 at the earliest, just because of the time it takes to, to do that and do it right. But next year will be a lot of conversations and planning involving licensees and other stakeholders uh, to flesh out what that looks like. But that's not a prediction. That's an actual, that's right. Yeah. That we'll be doing uh, uh, what, we've, what we've committed to. All right. So in other words, you're, predict you're predicting some level of satisfaction from our licensees for us taking these steps. Would that be right? Um, it's it's always hard to predict the future. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. So I'm going out on a limb. Yes. That's okay. That sounds great. 
Well, uh, earlier in the podcast, we discussed how listeners can provide us a feedback. And one way you can do that is you can do so wherever you subscribe to your podcast. You can put a note up there. Or if you really want us to get eyes on it more quickly, you can send us a comment at marijuana at Oregon.gov. And the subject heading, uh, you can put something in there about In the Weeds or OLCC podcast or something on those lines, and that way it'll get to us. But we'd love to hear some questions or some things that you would like to have covered, and we'll make sure we'll, we'll work on that as we go forward. Also, some of our guests talked today about uh, participating in our public process for rulemaking. There are two things that we're taking a look at, proposed rules around the increase in THC limits for edibles, and uh, separately, uh, rules, proposed rules for artificially derived cannabinoids. So if you've got comments and feedback that you'd like to get, get to us, uh, do so um, in the next week or so, uh, as the data is going to close on those. The email address for that is ol cc.rulemaking, all one word, at oregon.gov. We talked about two things in this episode that are being proposed. The rules are, there's a lot of rules. So the first thing I would recommend is people go, as Amanda said, look at the rules, see all the changes that are there, and provide comment on all of the things that you think are important. So we highlighted a couple of things, but there's a lot in there. Um, and so we really want to hear from licensees on, across the board on all of those things. Uh, so please read the rules and comment beforehand, because as we've said in, in prior episodes of this, of this episode, telling us what you don't like after the rules are approved does not help. Tell us before they're approved, because that's when you have Very good point, TJ. And uh, the OLCC staff is looking forward to the winter holiday reading. So get those comments into us. Well, guys, I was going to wrap it there. I was going to ask for any final thoughts or comments, or do we even want to pledge that we're going to get back on a regular schedule for our podcast? Or uh, I'll, I'll throw it to you guys, and then we'll we'll call it a wrap. I'll see you in January 2023 for the next recording of In the Weeds. I, for one, hope we have a podcast sooner than that. <laughs> oh, very good, Amanda. Ambitious. All right. Well, thank you, guys. It was fun getting together to do this. It's been way too long. So, again, for those listening, this podcast is being recorded in December of 2021. Make sure to keep an eye out for subsequent podcasts and other communications from the OLCC to stay current and current with the rules and also be compliant. The In the Weeds podcast is a public information service produced by the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission to communicate with current and prospective members of Oregon's regulated marijuana industry. Our theme music is a portion of the song, The Afterlife by Yacht, licensed from Creative Commons. For more information about Oregon's recreational marijuana program and this podcast, please visit marijuana.oregon.gov. You can listen to In the Weeds through SoundCloud or subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or TuneIn. Our thanks to Josh Fisher for engineering and editing this podcast. I'm Mark Pettinger for Amanda Borup and TJ Sheehy. Until next time, keep listening. Until then, keep reading the rules. Yeah.